0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tinellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax and the pearler's daughter is the brilliant debut novel from lizzie pook an award-winning journalist and travel writer who lives in london after spending time in northwestern australia researching the south sea pearling industry lizzie was inspired to write this novel a novel which not only explores the origin of this treacherous yet alluring industry but a novel about family about loss redemption and second chances and above all a novel about a woman who would go to any lengths to save someone she loves a gorgeous novel which had me aching to head back to Broome and immerse myself in the natural beauty and history of a truly remarkable region in this vast country of ours. And here with me today to chat about her book is the talented Lizzie herself. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Hi, Claudine. Lovely to be chatting with you. Thank you for that very generous introduction. <laughs> (laughs) Not generous at all. Very well deserved. And I wanted to say congratulations on the publication of your debut novel, which incredibly was released simultaneously in Australia, the UK and the US. How marvellous. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, yes it's all been very exciting and a bit
1: of a whirlwind, so it's out in Australia now, it's out in the UK now, and actually uh, US and Canadian publication is in June, so oh. it's been sort of, sort of, yeah, so it's a, a long sort of drawn out process of launching around <laughs> the world, but it, it's, it's really nice and it's been really lovely to get messages from uh, out in Australia and, and um, here in the UK as well, so, so yes, all very exciting.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And so it has been out for a while now in Australia. How are you feeling? Are you still in that kind of pinch me mode? Yeah, I think it was interesting because as you
1: mentioned, I I do live in London. And so when it came out in Australia, I couldn't go and see it in the bookshops or anything like that or meet readers face to face or anything. So there was this slight sort of disconnect with my book, this thing I'd worked on for years being out and available in, in Australia, but I couldn't actually see it with my own eyes. But it's been really, really nice to have loads of messages on social media, people sending me pictures of it in their local bookshops and um, yes, just message, I've had some really lovely messages from people whose family were involved in the pearling industry and they wanted to get in touch and say oh thank you for, for writing a book about this and we felt it was really important that you told this story so that was really lovely and also my main character is in- loosely inspired I would say by, by a real woman called Eliza Broadhurst and her great great granddaughter got in touch with me and oh, said right. that, she was, that she'd um, picked up the book and, and seen her great great grandmother in the acknowledgements and that she was taking it away with her on holiday to read and really that was just so lovely and I think I, I can't hope for anything better than that so um, it's been really nice slightly surreal and also slightly exposing it's really you know there's something so vulnerable about having a book out in the world especially something that I've worked on for years. You know, this was a, a research process that took years, but also something that has just my heart and soul in it. So, um yeah, it's been it's been lovely to get uh, such a good response.
0: Oh, how wonderful! You said something a little bit earlier that I just want to touch on. It is an important story, I think, and we were just talking a little bit about that before we started recording. It's a story that documents, you know, as you said, um, British Australian shared history, um, yeah. and I think a, a story that. Australians really do need to read. But more than that, I think your descriptions of the northwest of Australia, the landscape and the weather were so atmospheric that I could feel the oppressive humidity of the air. I could smell the mud from the mangrove swamps and I could see the color of the sky as the storms rolled in. So much so that I was convinced that you must have been from the area, someone who grew up in the region, uh, seeing the landscape in all its guises along with the array of plants and animals that inhabit it. Even your characters' encounters with the various marine life had me enthralled. So I wanted to ask you, Lizzie, how was it that you were able to write so convincingly about this area?
1: Thank you for saying that. That's really kind. I, I, I do wonder because in, before I was an author, I was a travel writer. And so I spent my life travelling around the world and had to convey sense of place and what it was like to be in a particular environment often in only a few hundred words. And so when you're doing that, you have to really try and transport the reader immediately. So I, it's really kind of, you can say to say, but I can only assume that it, it's partly linked to, to that and to, and to always trying to have sense of place in everything that I write. But I did spend quite a lot of time out in that part of Australia while I was um, researching this book. I was lucky enough to be able to go back out a a few times specifically to sort of uh, the the Kimberley and Broome and um, Kate Levique and, and those parts of the world. And I'm also a very visual writer and I take a lot of video. I even took sort of audio, just sort of soundscapes of things like birds or the ocean or just um, whatever sounds like it, yeah whatever sounds I could I could pick up with my phone when I was traveling and, and so back here in the UK when I was doing much of the writing I plastered my walls with all sorts of pictures of the landscapes or early settlers in that in that part of the world or as you you know marine life wildlife things like that so writing for me is a very sensory experience and hopefully that translates to the page but also when you're you know I love that part of the world it fascinates me I'm just completely obsessed with it and I think when you have that fascination as a driving force hopefully that sort of comes through on the paper because you know it really is such a broom in that part of the world it's a cliche to say but it's an assault on the senses you know it is really can be stiflingly hot the colors are almost obscenely bright and so it really is a very very OTT experience being there and so it's
0: it was nice to be able to bring that to the page well you absolutely have succeeded in doing so and as I said it made me long to go back so yeah well done you on that absolutely (laughs) beautiful so lizzie for those who haven't read moonlight and the Pearl's daughter could you tell me a little bit more about the story
1: yeah so moonlight and the Pearl's daughter is a historical mystery set against the backdrop of the dangerous pearl diving industry in 19th century western australia our protagonist is Eliza Brightwell, a young, strong-willed British woman whose family has sailed across to the remote community of Bannon Bay to set up in the lucrative pearl shell industry. Um, But when Eliza's Father, Charles, the eccentric captain of a purling lugger, goes missing from his ship while out at sea. Under suspicious circumstances, it falls to Eliza to uncover the truth of what's happened to him. And as she sort of scours the streets of Bannon Bay and the seas beyond, she uncovers uh, corruption, prejudice and lots of long buried secrets.
0: I mentioned briefly and so did you that you'd spent time in northwest of Australia doing research but what was the seed of inspiration that sent you down the path of writing Eliza's story? Yeah
1: so there were there were two parts basically that that ended up dovetailing Um, and the first was when I was uh, driving from Perth to Darwin with my twin sister, and we ended up at the Maritime Museum in Fremantle, and in that museum was a little exhibition, quite tucked away, about a family of British settlers called the Broadhursts who'd sailed across to Shark Bay in, in WA, and the father had tried his hand at pearl di- pearling not pearl diving, pearling, he was, a, he was a master pearler. That intrigued me. I didn't know much about this industry at all. And the idea of a British um, family sailing over, you know, the, taking that months long sail to do that was in, intrigued me. But the matriarch of that family was a, a woman who I mentioned earlier, called Eliza Broadhurst. And she was quite formidable, actually. She was, you know, we would call her a feminist now. She was an early feminist. She su- subscribed to feminist literature. She survived um, shipwrecks and storms and set up a school in the outback. And so that just interested me and that family stuck in my head for years and never really left. But it was only when I ended up in Broome and learned more about this fascinating, dangerous, brutal, oftentimes exploitative industry of pearling and pearl diving that I just became completely hooked. You know, it really sparked an obsession and I knew I wanted to Write more about this part of the world because in the mid 19th century, Broome would have been a total anomaly on Australian soil. In that, people from all over the world descended on what was a tiny sort of red dust township. People from America, Asia, um, the Caribbean, uh, Europe, all to sort of try their luck and their fortune in in finding pearl shell. And I was just wanted to explore what it would have been like to live in that part of the world and also have a bit of a deeper look at this industry, which I think can appear perhaps romantic on the surface and you know we look at a string of pearls and they're incredibly beautiful and we see the pearling luggers the, sh- the ships that were used to sort of um, take the crews out and, and dive for shell and it, and it appears a sort of lovely adventurous romantic thing but that was not the case this was an incredibly dangerous industry in its early stages indigenous people were Forced, kidnapped, and forced to dive for shell, it was a form of slavery in its in its early stages. Then, as it shifted um, and the fabric of whom, the people who made up the crews changed slightly, and the hard hat diving suits were introduced, it was still incredibly dangerous. And men would descend to the bottom of the sea in their heavy sort of copper helmets and their lead weighted boots, and they would come up against sharks, crocodiles, sea snakes, or even whales. And their air pipes could become entangled in the flukes of whales, and they could be dragged through the the water until they drowned or you know countless people succumb to divers paralysis which we know of as the bends and so those two ideas basically came together a British settler family with a strong-willed woman at its centre and this what I felt was a fascinating slightly unexplored industry and shared sort of British Australian history as well so those are the two starting points and um, yeah it went from there.
0: Yeah absolutely fascinating I think you explore the danger and the treachery of the pearling industry incredibly in this book. I mean, you, you just talked about some of the dangers that pearl divers faced and in the book you're describing quite some detail, one horrifying encounter between a pair of humpback whales and two of the Brightwells divers. What research did you have to do to bring those accounts to the page?
1: I read a lot of 19th century adventure fiction while I was, while I was writing this book. And um, interestingly, there were very, very few women in any of those books. It was just men everywhere doing dashing brave things. So I used lots of those sorts of books for my inspiration and um, wanted to put a female character at the centre of all that. But I was really lucky in that there were some very, very useful, books that I got my hands on, actually by chance. You know, there, there was a book that I came across in a secondhand bookshop in Fremantle, and um, it's called Port of Pearls by Hugh Edwards, and it's about the first 100 years of Broome. Really, I just picked that book up by chance on a, on a trip, thought it looked interesting, bought it, did not realize how incredibly useful that book would be in that it just details all of these stories of what the divers came up against, how indigenous people were treated, just the mechanics of the diving industry as well. That was so fascinating. And then there was another book that I came across in the Kimberley Bookshop in Broome called Beyond the Lattice by Susan Sickert. And again, that just had so many interesting stories about the inhabitants of of Broome. And it was really a case that while researching this book, truth was stranger than fiction. The stuff that I was actually reading was fascinating. And so there was one account of divers coming up against humpback whales in that sense. And I thought, well, that is just absolutely fascinating Have to fictionalize that for my book. And so I was really lucky in that there were just so many incredible anecdotes that I was able to sort of use them for my story in a fictionalised way but it was I had had such a rich seam of um, research to use.
0: Now Eliza was a fascinating character I mean she was someone who was not content to be a woman of her time someone who bucked society's expectation of women and to some extent she was forced to comply for her own safety in many instances but she didn't capitulate easily did she? No
1: (laughs) she And this is this is where my, the, the woman who inspired her actually came in, and that she is now seen as a very modern sort of woman. And so I didn't want my heroine to be too modern and just completely out of place, because I also think this is interesting where her, one of her friends in the book, the character of Min, reminds her that actually sometimes in order to get ahead, you do have to acquiesce and you do have to almost play men at their own game and, you know, accept that um, you are going to be sort of pushed into certain situations, but you can manipulate those situations as well. So I did want to have a female character who didn't adhere to what was necessarily expected of her at that time. But I also wanted to make her realistic too. But I, I also needed Eliza to have a very strong driving force and a reason for her to be acting in this way. And that's where the themes of sort of loss and grief come in because Eliza and actually lots of the characters in this book are propelled through the story by loss. You know, there are characters in the book who have lost family members, but also lost land, lost liberty, lost identity, lost sense of place and belonging. And I really wanted to explore how that can push people to put themselves into situations that they wouldn't necessarily have had the ambition or drive to put themselves in otherwise. And so that is why I think she acts how she does because she's lost so much already and there's so much at stake. So, you know, the stakes really had to be so high for her to be acting in this very sort of um, unconventional way.
0: You mentioned earlier that the industry was not only treacherous, but it was quite exploitative and corrupt. So tell me about the people who were employed by master pearlers like Eliza Brightwell's father. It varied. In the early stages of pearling, which would have been in the
1: 1850s, 1860s, around Sharp Bay and um, places like that, divers weren't employed. They were kidnapped and forced to dive. So that would have been um, Aboriginal men uh, women and even children in the early stages. You know, there were some truly horrifying stories that I uncovered, particularly in that pearlers would sometimes purposely impregnate the women because they felt that pregnant women had increased lung capacity and could therefore dive deeper and longer for Shell. So this was slavery in, in the early stages of, of pearling. It was, it was slavery in everything but name. As it evolved and slightly later on when my story is set, it was indentured labor that was used. So that they, they were crews that were sort of imported from um, Japan, China, um, parts of Indonesia. And the crews were very diverse, multicultural. Some pearlers treated their divers well and many of them didn't. And so that was something I wanted to explore as well. I, I, I don't think it's necessarily always the case that things are black and white and good and bad. And so that is really what I wanted to explore in this book, the gray areas, the morality of it. You know, Eliza loves her father, but her father is involved in this industry and she has to come to terms with that during her search for him. And that's something that I felt was really important to explore as well, because that relates to all of us and all of our history in that white settlement of Australia was horrendous and terrible and invasive and we have to explore that part of our history I think it's something that we have to interrogate and I don't think that we should shy away from something because it's makes us feel uncomfortable. And that is really something that I wanted to explore with this book.
0: I came across a a term, you know, I think it was in your author's note at the back, which I hadn't actually heard of before. But I mean, it it relates to what you were actually just talking about. The term was blackbirding. And so that was the practice that you just referred to then of, of kidnapping. Yes, blackbirding.
1: It's just another term for kidnapping. Yeah. So in the early stages
0: The Perlers would
1: show up with guns and chains and they would they would force people to come with them and, and dive for shell and they'd be some of them even used almost like slave islands in that they would, would corral um, indigenous people on these islands and then they would sell them off to, you know, there were people who actively went out and, and found divers and they would sell them to pearlers. Um, it, you know, it really was horrendous. Um, but yeah, that was a new term to me as well, blackbirding. I, I've not heard it, but actually, if you explore the pearling industry a bit more, it's used quite, um, quite often in that sense. But um, yeah, just just shocking.
0: Yeah. And I, I only question you about that a little bit because I think it in part explains the young character of Quill, the deckhand that Eliza employs on on the lugger as she goes searching for, for her missing father. So can you tell me a little bit more about Quill and why that was um, important to her character?
1: Yeah, so, so Quill was actually based on a real person who was called Nib but was referred to as Knife and he was a young boy who was who worked as a translator for a missionary in Derby and uh, to to a father Duncan McNabb his name was and he was a missionary and he worked alongside indigenous people on the Dampier Peninsula and he recorded um, the language and he you know did a missionary's work and and we know now that missionaries work was actually quite damaging for Aboriginal communities in that they were trying to encourage them not to use their own languages or their own cultural practices and things like that but at the time um, these communities would have almost welcomed him because he did not want to take, you know, they they did not take from them. They did not want anything, you know, in terms of land or women, like lots of the other white settlers. And um, yes, there was this young boy that, that, and, and I saw a little sort of exhibition about him. And I thought that was a really, really interesting character. And I also wanted to have a character, an indigenous character, That was really active and nuanced and integral to the story as well Um, because I think sometimes it can be quite easy to just write about people who look like uh, ourselves and have the same lived experience as us and so I wanted to reflect the diversity of places like Broome and the Dampier Peninsula and so that's why um, I also worked alongside Bart Pigram, who came on board as a paid cultural consultant on the novel, and the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre, who were really, really helpful And in terms of consulting on the manuscript and the characters of Quill and Balari as well. And so that was a really, really wonderful process in that it just added to the richness of the novel. And, you know, uh, they were able to point me towards particular reference books that I would find useful or academic papers or you know have you considered this part of history and writing about this or and so it was really a really interesting and beneficial process and made all the characters hopefully a bit more well-rounded
0: Lizzie there's so much detail as I just mentioned in this book so I wanted to ask you how long did you work on it before you decided to submit it for publication (laughs)
1: <laughs> well it's interesting because I had the idea for the book rattling around in my head for years and it really was something that just never left me and I do think ideas can choose us I think they're the ones that sort of are constantly tapping on our shoulder and saying oh by the way I'm still here so actually it was a process of several years in terms of doing bits of research here and there but actually when it came to properly sitting down and writing the book I would say about a year and a half that was around my job as a journalist so I was writing whenever I could in the evenings or you know I even wrote parts of this book on a ship in off the east coast of Greenland in in a in the forest in Rwanda so I was on the road really writing this book so it was I would say about a, a year and a half in the in the Proper writing of it, um, but then I redrafted and redrafted. I must have done about fifteen drafts of this book <laughs> to go sort of change things dramatically, uh, kill characters off, bring characters back to life, change the ending completely. Um, I even I did a draft just focusing on the weather. I did a draft just focusing on insects and flies. I did a draft just focusing on the characterization of Eliza and stuff like that. So it really was a case of just shaping it and, and and reshaping and rewriting. So a bit of a labour of love. <laughs>
0: Indeed, it sounds like it. Did you always want to write a novel, Lizzie? I, I always loved
1: creative, writing creatively as a child, but writing a book never seemed like a job. You know, it was never presented as a career prospect that you could, you know, write a book. So that is why... I went into journalism because there was, you know, I saw lots more women journalists, you know, just represented on TV and things like that. And um, so I think I always did, but it was just never something that I thought you could do. So it was only when, actually I, I, I was a very busy travel writer and journalist and I actually went through a period of ill health and was, diagnosed with chronic illness and told to rest and told to slow down <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and it was actually then that I, I started properly focusing on the book because not only did I have time stretching out in front of me whereas before I'd been so high octane and busy and just focusing, focusing on sort of traveling around the world yeah. but also I'd lost, sort of lost my identity as well when I, when I was forced to take a step back from what I thought was the only interesting thing about me my my job and my career Mm -hmm. and it was almost like well what do I have now and 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 writing this book became you know the book became a life raft I clung to it yeah that's when that this sort of new dream shifted into focus of of writing this book and maybe possibly having this this book published so when I was editing the book I was the pandemic had hit, so any travel writing stuff that I did have left disappeared overnight. Like you know, like it, like many people's careers did with the with the pandemic. Um, I was not very well, and at that stage, my husband and I were living in my mum's attic bedroom. <laughs> so really, have, having this book and focusing on this book gave me a sense of purpose, and I'm grateful to it for that.
0: Nithy, there are many writers who listen to this podcast and given your incredible journey to date, are you able to offer some tips for those seeking a home for their work or those who want to write and don't know how to go about it?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think one of the first things, which is advice that lots of people give, is to read, 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 read. But I'm also quite keen on annotating my books. (laughs) Because I think if you can, if you're reading a book that you're loving, and you can identify what it is about that passage, that chapter, that plot twist that's really engrossing you, and you can make annotations in that book, you know. A, perhaps a third of the way through your book, something has happened to turn the story on its head. If you can make a note of that and realize how that author is crafting their novel, it's a really good way of learning from the best basically. So I'm a big advocate for making notes in margins or if you don't wanna do that, take some post-it notes and, and sort of stick those through our books as well. And, and you, know, you, you bought the book, but essentially the advice is free after that. Um, so that's really helpful. Also, there was a piece of advice that I heard that really did just change the way that I thought about writing. And I'm not sure if I can say the word, but it's that it was from an an indie author called Shannon Mayer. And she said, your muse is your bitch, basically, was her phrase. (laughs) But what she meant by that was that I think there's sometimes the temptation. I certainly had it when I started writing to wait for the muse to arrive before you... in your chair you say oh I'm just not inspired to write today so I'm not going to sit in my chair and do it but actually you sit in that chair and you tell the muse when to turn up you tell her when she needs to be at work and you can you can summon creativity just by sitting in the seat and telling it to arrive and so when I look back on my book now I can pinpoint the parts that were really hard to write because it felt like a slog or I was not feeling very well that day or I was very tired but actually there's no difference now between those parts of the book and the parts of the book that came more freely. So I also think there's a slight myth that good writing has to be easy. It's not, you know, writing is sometimes just such a slog, but if you can get through that, and if you can keep going, um, you can edit bad prose, but you can't edit a blank page. So just get something down, get the words down. As I said, I must've done 15 drafts of this book. Wow. And Initially, I was paralysed by the idea that what I was writing was not good. But it doesn't matter because you can make that better. The main thing you need to do is just get some words down.
0: Yeah, Very sage advice. It's not (laughs) the first. I haven't heard it in those terms before. (laughs) And I love it. I love it. I think we can work with that. Absolutely. (laughs) So if um, anyone is out there listening and wondering whether or not they've got, they're they're inspired enough to sit down, remember what Lizzie just said. (laughs) (laughs) they (laughs) need it printed on a t-shirt or something lizzie if there was one thing that you'd like readers to take away from this novel what would it be i think
1: it would be what we touched on before about grief and loss sometimes acting as a propulsive thing because that is certainly what i have found in my life my own dad passed away when i was 19 you know eliza's 20 in this book (laughs) i don't think there's any sort of coincidence about that but i have found that you know yes there were the thorny parts of grief and the very difficult parts of grief but it can also lead us to do things we never would have dreamed we were capable of doing because we're willing to take that risk because we've already been through loss um, and so I would really love it if people felt reassured and comforted by that in this book and yes, hopefully they will
0: be. <laughs> Lizzie, I loved Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter, a rich, poignant and fascinating Australian story that I recommend for lovers of historical fiction. I wish you every success with this book and thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Oh, thank you
1: for having me. It's been lovely.
0: That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at com via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.